On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organisation. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk. There's still a lot of RT content, and um, we'll get to that in a minute, but there, there is, of course, a couple of other bits and pieces across the front pages, um, all of which are of interest. Um, the Sunday Times, understandably, uh, if you saw the, the joint investigation uh, that was broadcast on Channel 4 last night, uh, leads with allegations about the comedian uh, and actor Russell Brand. Um, the sex predator who hid in plain sight is the headline on that. The comedian and actor Russell Brand has been accused of rape, sexual assaults, and emotional abuse during a seven-year period at the height of his fame. Four women have made allegations of sexual assaults between 2016 and 2013, while he was a presenter for BBC Radio 2 and Channel 4, and then an actor in Hollywood films. Others have made a range of accusations about Brand's controlling, abusive and predatory behaviour. Brand strenuously denies the allegations and says his relationships have all been consensual. Uh, The findings come, as I said, from a joint investigation by the Sunday Times, the Times and Channel 4's Dispatches programme. Uh, You might have seen uh, the Mighty Minute broadcast on Channel 4 last night. I think it was already quite telling that there was going to be something fairly sensitive because Channel 4 wouldn't ordinarily... uh, uh, ring fence 90 minutes of Saturday night programming um, for a news investigation but they were very coy until uh, pretty early yesterday as to what exactly they were going to be broadcasting but Russell Brand came out himself on Friday night to confirm what exactly was being investigated uh, one woman alleges that Brand raped her against a wall in his Los Angeles home she was treated at a rape crisis centre on the same day according to medical records text messages show that in the hours after leaving his house uh, she told Brand that she had been scared by him and felt taken advantage of adding when a girl says no it means no Brand replied saying he was very sorry and of course then there is uh, much more detail inside the paper about the allegations made uh, by the other women in that instance Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times and I can't imagine this will go down too well in some parts of Donnybrook Um, RTE last night defended spending €20,000 on Rugby World Cup tickets some for commercial clients and admitted that a number of the tickets had not been used. The station said that the heavily discounted tickets worth €39,000 had been used for audience giveaways. Some were offered to staff at face value. RTE said yesterday that it had returned a small number of unused tickets for Ireland's opener against Romania in the Rugby World Cup, but it couldn't say whether any of its tickets to yesterday's match against Tonga had been used. Uh, the Sunday Times has confirmed that the broadcaster received 126 Category 1 and Category 2 tickets for various games in France. An RT source told the Sunday Times that a large number of the tickets had remained unused as the scandal grew over financial governance. More details on that inside the paper, uh, RT explaining that because it is a broadcaster uh, for the Rugby World Cup, as indeed is my employer Virgin Media, uh, that they were given access to a certain amount of discounted tickets and those are the tickets that they spent the money uh, buying. Uh, Speaking of RTE, uh, the front page of the Mail on Sunday, ministers have ruled out direct exchequer funding for RTE amid fears that this would give a Sinn Féin Ged government too much control over the state broadcaster. Uh, Instead, the cabinet wants RTE to be funded by a new cut price broadcasting charge of €100, but only if the crisis hit national broadcaster can demonstrate that it can deliver vital reforms from significant cost-cutting measures. Uh, Ministers expressed concern this weekend after Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald said on Friday that she favoured direct exchequer funding for RTE, uh, key cabinet figures who spoke to the Mail on Sunday said they fear a future where a populist or autocratic government could use financial control to coerce the national broadcaster. Uh, one minister warned that Sinn Féin are coming to power and we must be cognisant of, turn to page six, cognisant of their authoritarian, anti-democratic past. Direct exchequer funding might seem benign today but won't be tomorrow. Um, the only thing I'll say 
is that um, wouldn't it be possible for the present government to feel like it was exercising control over RTE uh, by cutting its funding? And indeed, is not the present government demanding some changes about how RTE goes about its business in exchange for financial aid? Uh, so a certain amount of pots and kettles there, maybe. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a couple of minutes. Um, speaking of RTE, again, business post. Uh, state to get first call on RTE land. Uh, so much speculation this week about RTE having to sell some or all of the headquarters in Montrose. Well, Killian Woods tells us RTE will be forced to give the Land Development Agency first refusal on the purchase of the land, which significantly limits its chance of earning hundreds of millions of euro from that land. Uh, the business coach can reveal that RTE bosses have been told by the LDA in recent days that they must give it the chance to buy the land if it decides to sell. With RTE needing a bailout of up to 55 million euro for this year alone, Director General Kevin Backhurst has said that everything is on the table, including the option of selling the remaining site. Uh, if bought by the LDA, the land will be likely worth less than 100 million euro to the beleaguered broadcaster, rather than uh, the 300 to 500 million euro that politicians have touted uh, in recent days. Um, it would also be quite noted, notable that although it would be used for a different purpose, that it would effectively be one arm of the state uh, giving financial assistance to the other, rather than uh, ultimately trying to, to realise money for the taxpayer. Uh, finally, for now, the Sunday Independent has lengthy uh, exchanges or lengthy extracts, rather, um, inside the paper uh, from the memoir of Dr. Tony Houlihan, which is being uh, published this coming week. Uh, he writes very lengthily about the treatment of his wife Emer and the very early handling of her symptoms when she uh, ultimately succumbed to multiple myeloma. Um, he's also very sharply critical of the meaningful Christmas, uh, more of which is inside. Uh, the lead story there is the parish priest, who was the first to call out the paymaster behind the attack on a director of Sean Quinn's former companies. Uh, he has written today uh, for the Sun Independent. He describes Sean Quinn's new book as a highly selective and self-serving exercise in revising history, uh, which might make for some interesting glares across the pulpit, I imagine, at masses uh, in that part of the world today. Uh, that's your tour of what's on the front pages of the papers. Join in studio to discuss those stories and more by Adrian Sweeney who is the director of Power Squirt Springs Health Farm and the owner of Rainforest Spa and by John Cunningham uh, who has a whole armful of titles uh, it says here Relationship Director at Morgan McKinley Chair and Country Director of Lysis Group uh, he is still Chair of Gashka he is newly reappointed to the Board of the Irish Museum of Modern Art and this week he became a Council Member of Dublin Chamber are, are there any jobs left for anyone else John or you, you're the reason for maximum employment It's the ones that are getting paid for I'm more concerned about as I told you before <laughs> if I go home and tell my wife I'm doing anything else for free, she's going to leave me, but uh, delighted okay. to do my best. So that means that there's, there's more titles, actually, that we could attribute to you that you're not getting paid Maybe for. next time I can okay, give you the right. well, well, but there's, there's only uh, 51 minutes left in this hour, so we better uh, plough on. Um, the the RTE coverage, I, I know people might find get more coverage of the future of RTE uh, to be a little bit tedious at this point, and we will maybe talk about the debut of Patrick Keelty uh, hosting the Late Late in a couple of minutes. Um, but Adrian, th- this story in the front of the mail about the, the present government having some fears about a future populist government using the lever of exchequer funding to exercise control over RTE. That's not something the present government can already do anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But the reality is that RTE, um, it it needs funding from the government to survive as it stands. And there isn't a plan in place um, at the moment. And um, so there will be a situation whereby we potentially are looking at uh, bailing out RTE to the tune of 55 million euro just this year, mm. as we've seen on the front pages of the papers there. Um, and there does need to be some control over taxpayers' money in some respects because that that is a lot of money to spend and there does need to be checks and balances um, put in place if that is given mm. to RTE to keep it alive. 55 million for this year alone is a very interesting point because I hadn't heard this observation made until Kevin Backhurst said it at the committee this week when he was in before the, the Oireachtas Media Committee saying that, you know, it, there's a good chance that this licence fee boycott or this kind of mass non-compliance... 
could bleed into next year. So like 55 million to get them to New Year's Day mm. is all well and good, but it's not as if come New Year's Day, everyone suddenly starts paying no. the license fee again, that there's a prospect of them being down ten, tens of millions yeah. and, and maybe even, you know, hundreds of millions protectively for next year. So 21 million euro, it's estimated that they're going to lose out in terms of um, license fee um, boycotting. Yeah. And, you know, it's very hard to turn the tide of that when people stop paying it and people aren't actually going to prison as they're threatened mm. with. Um, there's a lot more people that will follow suit as well. So Yeah, it does remind you a little bit of water charges, doesn't it? That if so many people decide not to pay, that it might be the law of the land, that it might be expected of them and they might think they're being good citizens by paying it. But ultimately, if there's a certain level of non-compliance, it just becomes impossible to chase, doesn't it? Which brings us back to the drawing board really in terms of what is RTE and how do we fund it and if it is being partially funded by the taxpayer then how do you differentiate the commercial side from the state side uh, as Mm. well so there's a lot of work on Kevin Backhurst's desk at the moment and he hasn't got a huge amount of time to actually do it Yeah, uh, John there's an awful lot of uh, RTE coverage about uh, coalition fears of a Sinn Féin RTE, Uh, the 100 euro charge that's now being floated about the state getting first uh, call on on the land of Montrose, Uh, what jumped at you this morning? Well, I think, first of all, I think Adrian and I were talking about this earlier on, all of this stuff is still going on and the fundamental question is what is RTE all about? The public service broadcasting versus this issue of the commercial entity. And I think that we talk about Kevin Backhurst having responsibility and the first thing we need to do is give this man a chance to get his head around things and come up with a strategy. But more importantly, from a government level and from a ministerial point of view, what is our commitment to public service broadcasting? In a functioning democracy, we know we need it. And these questions, I think, are still left unanswered. And the thought of selling the land in RTE to fill a, a, a medium-term gap to me is, is, I think, nonsense. They need to have a much more strategic view with regard to what they're going to try and do. And I think, again, like even this issue of the, 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 the money on the rugby tickets, OK, you know, Mm. This is an entity that is fundamentally a commercial entity that needs to make money and raise money. Okay, And if they're using those tickets to entertain their clients, to shore up their advertisers, okay, that's fine from my perspective, as long as there's some sense of clarity. Mm. And at the moment, that clarity for me just doesn't exist. And I think, you know, the RTE piece, and they're going right into the nitty gritty again. And we'll talk about the Late Late Show in a moment. Okay, But, but yeah. it has to be fit for purpose. It has to work. But we have to understand, what is it? And at the moment, that for me is a question that isn't answered. So you, you think that with all the, the navel-gazing about what kind of uh, money there might be in the budget in three weeks for RTE to get over this year, let alone next year, and, and maybe this talk of replacing it with a universal household charge of some sort, that it's all putting the cart before the horse a bit? Well, no, I think at the moment, the, the one thing that can't happen is that RTE disintegrates and falls apart, right? Mm. So to me, it feels like there is an absolute requirement in the short term for government funding to fill the gap, yeah. right? And Does that mean that the government is, is sort of on the hook in a way? Because ministers were talking this week about RTE needing to provide some kind of demonstrable change of culture, that Catherine Martin can't in good conscience go to Cabinet and ask for 50 million quid unless she thinks that RTE is, is changing its practices. But in truth, it doesn't matter whether RTE is changing its practices because she can't allow RTE to die anyway. No, but then even those comments make it sound like as if it's nothing to do with them. RTE is a state-owned organisation, all right? And they have a fundamental responsibility with regard to ensuring that the public service broadcasting element of RTE is essential to a functioning democracy so don't be looking at Kevin Backhurst to change all these things on his own okay this is a full scale strategic review that's required and some really hard decisions and I was delighted to even hear that as part of the conversation they're talking about this universal charge of 100 euro that's the way the thinking needs to be neatly outside the box what's the best solution and again ultimately what it hasn't dealt with this is what Kevin Backhurst has a responsibility to do is issue of culture issue of structure issue of job descriptions all that 
normal management stuff mm. become himself and his senior management team stuff to resolve. But strategically, the government has to have an absolute sense of clarity with regard to what is the key strategic intent for RTE as a broadcaster. Um, this talk, uh, Adrian, in the mail of there being a new 100 euro charge for all media. So this is this is what's being proposed as a replacement for the license fee. So effectively, every household, uh, rather than having a TV license, whether you've got a license or not, every household whether they've got one or not, would pay a €100 Euro charge and that would fund not only RTE but also other media performing certain public service uh, remits, including News Talk and including my own uh, day job employer, Virgin Media. <laughs> it's only quarter past 11 on a Sunday morning, so I don't want to do too many sums, but there's about 2.1 million households in the country. If they all get charged €100 Euro and they all pay it, that gives you about €210 million. Euro. But the license fee brings in already a, about two hundred million euro, and that also that also gets applied to business premises for the likes. You know, if you've got a business premises like Marconi House here, you have to pay a TV license. I don't know if a broadcasting charge would cover a business premises like like ours or like your spa or like Paris Quarter or anywhere else. So it sort of seems like by replacing that, you'd already be bringing in a smaller pot of money, yeah. and then you want to split it between RTE and commercial radio and commercial television and maybe some of the print media as well. I, I don't see how that's a reform that works. It's just repackaging it, really. But the question is, is it going to be implemented at um, source and is it um, voluntary or is it not? And mm. so if it's not, then there's always the opportunity to increase that over time. So yeah. maybe it's been brought in at €100 Euro potentially mm. um, to get it over the line and then after that, as the years go on, it increases. It wouldn't have the same problem as the TV licence now, that if it's if it's a separate thing that you have to organise yourself to pay in, that like, although legally speaking, it's not. In practice, it becomes opt-in that if a household isn't paying it yeah well it's just the same thing as the, as yeah. the TV, TV so licence fee why wouldn't each... 40% of households not pay that either if they still think Ortiz getting the lion's share of it unless it's treated like the property tax for example something like that whereby you just have to pay it uh, oh. every year so it's how it's treated is important it's not really what it is but sharing it out amongst all of the other um, media outlets as well like you say it's just going to diminish the pot and you know Ortiz needs serious reform so mm. it needs a lot more money than it's currently getting in and so therefore it probably will need to do a lot more um, commercial uh, deals as well but there's not a huge amount of advertisers running towards it at the moment even seeing that the tickets that uh, were offered to commercial partners were not used says mm. a lot as well yeah. because they don't want to be associated with that. Uh, uh, that all may, might be why Pat McCork has messaged 87 1400 106 to say is going to have to sell off 2FM sell off Lyric FM, sell off RTE Gold, sell off RTE 2 TV station. All of them are surplus to requirements, Pat says, and also have a salary cap where nobody earns above €120,000. The gravy train days are over. It might be a, a slightly extreme take in it, Pat, but is, or John, but is, is that the sort of future that we might be looking at? No, but again, you just hope it's not beyond the wit of the people in RTE and the people in the department to sit down and have an articulate, complete conversation about what the future is going to look like. All of those things need to be discussed. But if there isn't a clear strategic intent with regard to what RTE's raison d'etre is, okay, oh. we're going to have this conversation going on forever and a day, right? So, and again, look at internationally, public service broadcasting around the world is regarded as a key element of any functioning democracy, okay? Yeah. Have other countries dealt with, with, with issues like RTE? Of course they have. What's best practice and what does it look like? So again, from my perspective, that's not... I hope if I'm on the programme again, Gavin, when I talk about RTE the next time around, <laughs> let, them, let them just take the issue, take it off the table mm. and come back with a plan. 
And as I said, there's people now, I think Kevin Backhurst, from my perspective, as I observe, is a really good leader for RTE mm. and he's going to do his very best to make it work. On the sale of Montrose, and I know the ministers have been going out of their way to say that they're, they're not putting this as a stipulation that if RTE want to do it, that it's a short-term way of realising cash, but that it does have long-term limits. One example that I've heard of one of the reasons why that may work, and I accept that it's not a structural thing, but that a lot of Montrose is now surplus to requirements. If you look at Radio Centre, for example, it's got the complication that it's a listed building, so mm-hmm. you can't just flatten it to build houses. But Radio Centre has a couple of very large studios, basically auditoriums, which are partly thought uh, designed in mind for having orchestras, that it's an orchestra rehearsal space as much as anything else. But one of the two orchestras doesn't belong to RTE anymore. It's now within the remit of the National Concert Hall, so it's not there. And even as Kevin Backhurst was saying himself during the week, there are plenty of studios in Radio Centre which are effectively now derelict or fallen into disuse because the mixing boards, like the one that Hugo is sitting beside right now in the production gallery just there, are are fallen into disrepair, they're broken, and Orti doesn't have the money to get them repaired. So all of that area, that physical footprint, is kind of surplus, surplus to requirements. And if you could find some way of better using the land, why wouldn't Orti build some replacement facility that is more suited to their actual needs than having this giant redundant facility and a very valuable plot of land? But all that's doing at the moment is moving around the furniture and the sinking ship, all right? So whether they're going to sell a bit of the land or it has to be part of a big strategic solution. So selling off bits, I mean, God help us all, what would happen to Fair City? But anyway, you know, it's it, it's it's going into the nitty gritty. Well, what before. else would you pay a photographer to take still pictures of? Yeah. In, indeed, <laughs> no, it sounds like a great job. That one of the few jobs I don't have. But um, <laughs> um, uh, it just strikes me that we're down to this nitty gritty again with regard to what. Step back, stop talking about it. Come up with a strategic plan, mm. and get not just RTE bought into it in the management team, but the department and the department of the Taoiseach and the government saying we know what we're doing. And then at that stage, it's easy to say we're going to give. 50 million a year because we know what we're doing and what we're giving yeah. for as against at the moment just trying to save the organisation from going off the edge of a cliff mm-hmm. so let's stop talking about it let Kevin Backhurst and his team take the time to reflect come back with the plan and let's all sign up to it uh, Here's an interesting text from somebody who hasn't signed their name Would a tax on service providers be better a percentage of charge from all services from fibre to streaming that if you basically paid a, a tax on your, your mobile phone subscription or a tax on your broadband subscription could that go to fund service provision uh, It would create an interesting loop where you'd be paying uh, a tax on your Virgin Media broadband connection to fund Virgin Media's TV coverage which would be a, an, <laughs> an interesting little circular transaction um, I don't know whether either of you stayed up to watch The Late Late on Friday night I watched it, yes What did you think? <clears throat> um, I think I, I think I feel the same way as um, I, I suppose most of X slash Twitter uh, felt as well. And I think actually Philip Nolan in the Mail on Sunday um, summed it up quite well, saying that it was like being handed the biggest and best ice cream cone in the world, only to watch it melt before you could finish it. <laughs> like it started so good, yeah. and the opening monologue was great. You know, mm-hmm. he was doing what he's good at, and he yeah. roasted. Um, what he roasted Ryan Tuberty let's face it um, less so uh, everyone else in RTE but um, it just uh, you know we all know it went downhill from there in the sense of but the how, how so how did it go downhill I mean come on now like I, the, I suppose the term the RTE canteen guest yeah. list that was rolled out so and then the idea I'm, that they had like the two FM presenters the two Johnnies <laughs> and then Tommy Tiernan yeah. etc and I mean look um, no, no, dis- no disrespect so to any of the guests it was, it was brave to have Tommy Tiernan as the first guest when Tommy Tiernan had been speculated as a prospective host, host. To, have, to have the balls to bring Tommy out as yeah, guest yeah. number one was, was ballsy. And without any disrespect to the guests on because they were all very good but it was um, it was too predictable and you know you'd imagine that um, uh, Patrick would have had a lot more connections than mm. uh, that were you know. Well but were, were connections not utilised maybe in sort of um, 
I wish there was a better way of saying this, but basically playing the Nordic card and getting Mary McAleese to come on and then yeah. getting James McLean to come on and talk about what it's like to be a, an Irish citizen and to espouse an Irish identity when you're from a contested part of the island. Well, I didn't uh, watch the show. Um, I was out. Um, and I suppose... Oh, one of your many night jobs. One of my, one of the many <laughs> night jobs. <laughs> Needs must. But, um, but what I'm hearing and watching is that, again, look, my view is, would you give the man a chance? Okay. Mm. It sounds like it wasn't as transformative as you thought the show was going to be. It's the same format, except maybe a bit more stand-up-y and comedy, all right? Mm. I actually believe he's a really good candidate for the job and it's going to take him a while to settle in, as mm. all the other hosts of The Late Late Show took their time to settle in. It did feel like, just looking at the lineup, you kind of, okay, well, here we go again, yeah. all right? But give the man some, give him a chance. I mean, permanent TSB, if it could come, out, come on as a new sponsor mm. for two years... So there's some funding in place for the show to happen. I mean, I think it's going to be more fascinating to see how he integrates with regard to the travelling back and forth from the UK and not living here yeah. and that inability to connect mm. with some of those stories. Yeah. And, you know, I said, so, but again, give the man a chance. I, I think that inability is possibly slightly overstated, but I did note that um, he wasn't doing his Saturday morning uh, programme on Five Live, which he's still committed to, to keeping going. So he's going to be driving to Belfast once the show is finished on a Friday night and getting a few hours kip and then being up to do his other job yeah. on BBC Radio on Saturday morning. And he didn't do that this week, which you can understand because there was a lot of teething and a lot to, to get his head around. But how that settles in uh, will be interesting to see. Uh, one final text before I go to a break. How about having those outrageous wages that those DJs are getting? I work in a hospital, says this texter it's a meaningful job and I get about a tenth of their wages um, that texter evidently believes that something ha- has to change um, Adrian Sweeney and John Cunningham uh, joining me in studio to discuss what's in the papers and joined on the line by News Talk's political correspondent Sean Defoe uh, Sean you're heading to the airport you're going to New York for the week as indeed it basically seems like half the cabinet is going to uh, to New York this week uh, what's so special about this week in New York Yes, it's the UN General Assembly and it, like you say, it's one of the biggest that I've ever known uh, of a ministerial delegation heading over. You've got the Taoiseach, the Taunashta, the uh, Green Party leader and Minister Eamon Ryan and Minister Stephen Donnelly. So all three coalition party leaders are spending most of the week in New York, uh, which is highly unusual. I mean, last year we were there for basically 36 hours as the Taoiseach sort of jetted in and jetted out to do his national speech. And I suppose what's different this year is that the last few years have been curtailed, obviously, by COVID. This is the first since 2019 where there is there are no restrictions or very, very limited restrictions on what can actually be done. 2020 was done uh, entirely online when, when Michal Martin would have addressed them and then 2021 a little more loose. And what's happened in that time is but when the UN General Assembly is there, there's, you know, all 191 countries or whatever mm. that are part of the UN give a, a big address, but there's also all sorts of side events that go on. So, for example, Stephen Donnelly is attending one on uh, future pandemic preparedness, as much as that will scare people to hear about, uh, mm. but also global access to... Uh, uh, universal health care. There's climate uh, summits on the sidelines as well that Eamon Ryan is going to. But in my memory, anyway, this is the longest amount of time a Taoiseach is going to spend at the UN going from Monday through to Friday. So uh, not alone is there a big delegation, but also Leo Varadkar is basically spending the, the guts of the whole week there. Yeah, that, that is remarkable because I, I certainly, like, I, I'm your political correspondent around almost as long as I am at Leinster House, but I certainly don't remember there being a time where, where an entire week has gone where the Taoiseach's been out of the country, let alone when he's brought a lot of the cabinet with him. 
And also the first time that both the Taoiseach and the Taunashta in a very long time, I could have missed the start of the Dáil, return of the Dáil is on Wednesday, neither of them, or in fact, none of the government party leaders are going to be there. So you presume Pascal Donoghue or somebody is going to be taking leaders' questions and taking a bit of a, a sting out of the Sinn Féin launch in the first week of uh, the Dáil. But also, on a bit more of a parochial note, and certainly from talking to the IFA this week, they're not massively happy about it. The first time, potentially in history, that a Taoiseach and a Taunashta have missed the ploughing championships uh, to be <laughs> elsewhere. So, you know, that's also a consideration in the background. Yeah. We'll be talking to Anna-Marie McHugh about that in the second hour. Maybe we might pick her brain as to whether she's a bit aggrieved at the lack of uh, political heavy hitters. Uh, it might be an open gate for, for Mary Lou MacDonald uh, to walk through, of course. Uh, what is actually on the agenda at the UN General Assembly? I know, it, as you mentioned, it's the thing where um, each of the, the presidents or prime ministers or whatever you have uh, stand up and kind of give their, their national viewpoint on the world. But what are we expecting to dominate affairs this week? Well, there's quite a bit on the agenda. I suppose the one that um, that is dominating in the early part of the week, and certainly on Monday, and this is bringing it back to your junior search CSPE days, uh, is the Sustainable Development Goals, because Ireland was sort of a co-founder of those goals in 2015 when they were kicked on and 2030 targets were put in place, and now Ireland is co-hosting a summit on the Monday with Qatar, of all countries, uh, about the progress of them. And basically the progress is that there, has, there hasn't been none. Most of them were on track uh, at 2019. Most of them are very, very off track after the pandemic, just 12% of the goals. And these are things like, you know, Reducing, um, reducing poverty around the world. There's climate targets in there. There's gender equality targets in there. There's a, there's a huge amount across the 17 different goals. So Ireland is hosting that, and they're hoping to sort of get a, a political declaration from all the countries to come on, lads, let's get back on track here. The Tonisha is also, and you, you'll know this, haven't been travelling with him in the last couple of weeks. It, it has a big focus on on Israel and Palestine mm. this particular week, and getting Ireland's viewpoint across. And having been there, I think he he has a, a particular passion for it and advocating. As I mentioned, Eamon Ryan is attending climate summits and there's quite a few health uh, bits on the margin as well. But also, because it, this is politics, there are always uh, a few bits going on in the background. Ireland is eyeing up, having just come off its, uh, its Security Council remit at the UN. There will be a big focus on Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky is going to attend. And speaking to some of the Irish officials, they're saying, look, it's very different from last year. Last year, there was a big showdown at the Security Council, which Ireland was a member of, and Sergei Lavrov was there being very Sergei Lavrov about everything. Um, and this year, it's a little bit different. They're sort of looking at countries like Africa and maybe the global south that have sort of gone, yeah, the war's going on, but we've got other priorities. So I think the goal from the Irish contingent point of view is to put Ukraine a little bit back on the map and say, look, this isn't over. We need to support Ukraine and we need to stay there, even though this war is dragging on and on and on. Um, ironically, I think that was one of the reasons why Michal Martin went to the Middle East, because he said Ukraine was distracting everyone and everyone had forgotten about Israel and Palestine. And that's why he wanted to go out there. And now two weeks later, he's saying, don't forget about Ukraine either. Um, <laughs> Sean, just very briefly before you go, um, because I know that sometimes this can be something which when, when people hear it, they get a little bit irked or they, they worry about what might be coming down the tracks. You mentioned that sort of pandemic preparedness treaty. Um, you know, it's obviously very much still in the works and it hasn't finalised at all, but like, what exactly would that entail if it was to come or to bear fruit? It's all about looking ahead and the, like, the scary thing that Stephen Donnelly has been saying and that he's been getting from the WHO is that while we all said COVID was a one in a hundred years, the, the forecasters, the Mike Ryans of the world don't believe it will be another hundred years before we have a similar COVID-like event. Uh, he was he tried to get him to put a figure on it during the week and he was very low to do that fairly understandably, but mm. it would be one in 30, one in 50 years or whatever. And we're obviously, the first steps have been put in place of setting up a pandemic prepared newness within the Department of Health, but sort of operating slightly separately from the Department of Health, siloed away from the day-to-day business. That's happening in other countries as well as they all look and go we were totally caught 
on the hop by this and we can't be caught in the future. So all different countries will be feeding in their different experiences and, and trying to work together to say, look, if something like this comes out of the blue again, how can we be better prepared? Okay. Sean Defoe, News Talks political correspondent. Sean, thank you very much. Sean, safe travels to New York. Uh, you'll be able to hear more from Sean uh, in New York throughout the week uh, here on News Talk and across uh, the Golan Network of Stations as he's covering the uh, events of at least four different members of Cabinet uh, as they all make their way to the Big Apple uh, for that meeting of the UN General Assembly. Uh, we are still joined in studio. Uh, by Adrian Sweeney, who's Director of Paracourt Springs Health Farm, and by John Cunningham, uh, Relationship Manager, Director with Morgan McKinley, uh, to go through what is in today's papers. Uh, understandably, there's an awful lot about the situation involving Angarda Siakona and uh, members of the GRA, the rank and file uh, members of the Garda Siakona, uh, almost unanimously uh, voting no confidence this week in the Commissioner, Drew Harris. Um, and a lot of speculation maybe about what happens next. Um, Adrian, what jumped out at you? Well, <clears throat> morale is very obviously low, as we can see in uh, the Garda. And we were talking earlier about the fact that on Garda Siakona now has a serious attraction and mainly retention problem. And... Um, this is terrible PR for attracting new recruits uh, to the force of which they're already massively short-staffed but um, it, there is going to have to be a compromise made, um, talks are upcoming, there is the threat of industrial action which nobody wants, including the Guardi themselves I imagine, um, but you know, there has to be a new roster found that is going to suit both the rank and file Gardaí and management as well. I mean, it's it's really what it is, is the debate over the pre-pandemic and the post-pandemic roster. Mm. And there were changes made during the pandemic, which had to be made, mm. but now they have to go back. And So they suit the management, but they don't suit the workers yeah. to do it full time. Basically, is, yeah. um Is declaring no confidence in their commissioner... John, um, it, it seems like a relatively novel way to go about it. But when the commissioner presumably isn't responsible for such micro things as setting rosters, there's an argument to be made that, yes, they're fully entitled to air their grievances and to try and raise, escalate disputes about how all this is going to be handled. But that personalising it with no confidence in the guy at the top of the chain, some people wouldn't see that the right way to go. Well, first of all, it's clearly a complex situation and I think we've got to be very careful not to oversimplify it. Now, first of all, Drew Harris is somebody who doesn't run the guards on his own. He has a senior management team of really competent and experienced support structures to run the Garda uh, force. And I suppose from my perspective, what's kind of really interesting is that I think that a bit of conversations we've had, Gavin, regarding the HSE and Orty and others, okay, there's some more fundamental issues within the guards that have to be addressed. And I think that there's a level of frustration that came through in this 98%. I mean, what was the figure? There was 85% turnout yes. when there's normally about 22% turnout. Yeah. And there's so a 98%. Even the turnout, I think, for the last public sector pay ballot, they still had only about 65%. Yeah. So, so, so there's clearly a high level of frustration and anxiety. And to me, this isn't necessarily about vote of confidence in Drew Harris. This is about this issue of the roster. Now, what I found astonishing, again, coverage in the, the Mail on Sunday, was that the, going back to the old roster means that they have to, the guards have to work an extra 25 days. Now, that just seems like an extraordinary shift from where they were. But yeah. they've got to get this, they've got to get this bit because right. Because to be fair, I mean, that, that is worth saying. It's not like guards are, are unfamiliar with um, antisocial working hours. Yeah. It's part of the territory. The guards need to offer a 24-7 service. So a lot of them are used to working overnights or long shifts and that discombobulating in their family lives. And that's fine. But the idea that the roster might have been rearranged, that effectively they're working a few weeks more per year than they previously would have done, that's surely not on without consultation. No, but and this, I think ultimately the Minister has intervened here and said, look, you know, that they need to listen 
to the GRA and by the way the GRA don't represent everybody they represent mm. a, a cohort there has to be discussion there has to be negotiation yeah. but they, but need, they need to listen to the GRA but also they have full confidence in the commissioner yeah, so well how do you square the two of them well I think you know it's unsquareable at the minute and I suppose to me maybe the bigger issue is that this has been the the straw that broke the camel's back. My understanding is that within the guards, one of the biggest issues is to do with pensions and salary. And the fact that over the last number of years, there are different pension schemes and different salary rosters mm. that actually have people looking now saying, look, the previous uh, pension schemes are much more effective. So there's a whole load of issues. And ultimately, I mean, you think about it at the moment, there are 700 guards behind what their target wants to be. And in addition to that, there are 300 guards on suspension which I think is another issue that's arisen that mm. the people are saying that the commissioner and the, 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 the leadership are too quick to suspend guards. How many, behind, how many are they behind there? There's 700 behind their, okay. behind their and target. And 300 suspended. And in addition to that, there's 300. So, so when the budget does its annual thing of announcing their funds for a thousand more Gardaí, then they yeah, break even. Yeah, so they find yeah well you know if attracting and retaining talent is a huge issue. And at the moment, back to Adrian's point, there's now a brand issue with regard to the guards and they've got to really strategically get their heads around fixing that. But ultimately, what it sounds like to me is if the investment that's been required to fix the guard, the Shia with the guard, mm. the pensions and the salaries has been ignored and we're fiddling around again the edges. So my question goes back to this thing again, strategically and leave Drew, Drew and the team alone home. From the minister's point of view and the Department of the Taoiseach and the cabinet, mm. what is the expectation of the guards and the delivery of their service to the nation. And if it's a case that requires further strategic investment, what's it going to be? Mm. Can it be done? And is it over two years or three years? Because at the moment, it feels like it's a bit broken. So what you're suggesting basically is that some of the long-term structural questions have been long-fingered and now suddenly the chickens are coming home to roost. And doesn't sound an awful lot like the topic in part one that we said we weren't going to go back to talking about again. Um, Adrian, are we looking at blue flu then here? or what's, well, How does this escalate? Because it doesn't seem like... Maybe I'm misreading the mood, but it doesn't seem like the Garda management are tripping over themselves now to try and resolve this, that they almost see it as something almost insubordinate that the rank and file are now uprising against the commissioner. So are we going to be looking at the prospect of organised non-compliance at work? Is this some sort of blue flu kind well, of thing? We could, and it is on the cards. It's probably not massively helped by the casual tone in which it has been referred to by Drew Harris that it's a kick in the teeth. It's just not the type of professional language you would expect um, yeah. in terms of wanted to look a bit more scolded sort of like oh we accept now that this is a, a situation that can't go on and that we're going to sit down and try and find some sort of working compromise there has to, there has to be some preamble stuff. to talks really yeah. and, and kicking the teeth is not the correct tone for that I would imagine yeah. but having said that there will be talks there is opportunity for talks it's not due to kick in this new roster until November 6th so I think it was 2016, if I'm not mistaken, when there was the threat of Garda industrial action mm. in the past um, and it was, you know, averted at the last minute. I, I'm assuming the same thing is going to happen again, but not without a lot of yeah. conversation. John, in a short term, what do you think comes out of this or how exactly do you go about trying to, to reconcile things? You, you mentioned the bigger picture solutions that the guards need, but in the short term, where in does the, this go? Well, in the short term, Drew Harris needs to be given the space and the time to do what needs to be done with regard to strategically engaging with regard to the conversation. Again, explaining and understanding what's really required to fix the issues. So from my perspective, again, a bit like the other topics we've had with RTE and the HSE, let them off and let them resolve it. But if it's a case there are big strategic issues, they cannot be long-fingered and they cannot be ignored. And fiddling around the edges with some of the issues is not the solution. So Minister McEntee and the broader cabinet need to understand 
don't mind having a functioning public bro- mm. public service broadcasting. We need a Garda Sheikhana that works and is functional to allow us kind of stuff. So at the moment, give him the time to think about, to, 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 to mm. reflect upon this, put the strategy in place and try and fix it. Now, some might say that the relationship is broken. There's no relationship that can't be fixed. And if it's a case, there's going to be an earnest level of disgust discussion and engagement I think this can be resolved Yeah, um, I'm going to do something that I don't usually do here and I'm going to read an entire article uh, uh, one of the papers there's a piece across pages 12 and 13 of the Mail on Sunday just tucked down at the bottom um, it's an anonymous member of Angarda Shiakona who is married to another member of the force she's written a short piece about the impact of the, the proposed new roster and how it would impact her family um, this is the piece we are now asking ourselves how are we going to cope in our house, we would have known right up in advance what way we would be working and when we were going to be working. I am married to a guard and we have quite a number of children who are quite young. I always work days when he is working nights because he gets up out of bed and picks the children up from school. But he's going to be on for six days now and I genuinely don't know how we are going to work it. When he is on days now from Monday to Saturday, I physically do not know how I will also get to work. We haven't even looked that far ahead because we're sort of hoping something will happen in the meantime. Our children are too big for creche and too young to be left alone. And with the unpredictability of both our hours, I don't know how we're going to be able to work at all. It's very worrying and we keep saying that we'll cross that bridge when it happens, but we both have been really hoping that we don't have to deal with it. We are typical of the type of guarded couple around the country who are asking themselves now, what are we going to do? How are we going to cope? There's hundreds of us in the same boat. There are so many guards who are married and it's going to have a terrible impact on all of our family lives. Um, to put a bit of a line under the conversation, Adrian, I suppose it's that sort of instance where it might be unusual for two people uh, to be married who are also both members of the guards. One, A household where one guard is there, there's a certain tumult, but they might have been able to make do with the new arrangements. But when you have two of them, and you've got a small family. It doesn't really seem like it's a, an unworkable solution. Yeah, as a working mum myself, I, I couldn't imagine being faced with that situation whereby you don't have any predictability really mm. um, on that front and you're working days and nights thrown into the mix on top of that. So it's very difficult. It yeah. really is very difficult and you can empathise with um, the Garda in this article as well. So um, it has to change, basically. Yeah. It just has to change. I, I have t- two small kids as well. And to be honest, even if uh, if I were hypothetically in the guards and working that kind of roster, even just the idea of requiring the other partner with, with their working life and everything that they have to do to be able to commit to doing the pick up, uh, the school drop up, and the school pick up, and maybe trying to get them to childcare or whatever else. But who's going standard. to sign up for that now? Yeah. Yeah, really? a very difficult thing. A couple of messages have just come in about this, actually. Uh, again, the, gov- the media is going with the government slash guard management spin that the GRA vote is just about rosters. Would you please do your job and investigate the issues being raised by the GRA? Uh, there have been issues, changes in how we operate in the past five years, which have us tied up in bureaucracy without being able to get out on the streets, which is where we want to be. Uh, and Ivan says, the guard's main gripe seems to be their new roster in which the guards are expecting to have to work more days relative to what they're doing at the moment. What was their roster situation pre-COVID? Asks Ivan. Um, I wonder with that first texter the person who says that we're going along with the guard of spin that it's just about rosters and that there's much more about that uh, if that person I, I imagine this person is either a serving guard or is has a close relationship to a guard genuinely illuminate us because I, I'm not trying to plead ignorance here but I, I want, I'm not aware of what the other underlying changes to how guards go about their work is so do if you are in a position to do so do get back to us 87 106 because I would be fascinated to know um, what has changed about the way in which you do your work and I'd be fascinated to give a little bit of voice to that and just see how things have changed because it's not something we get 
to hear. And if there's an opportunity for us to hear it, uh, we would love to do so. Uh, Lorna says, I don't mind paying the licence fee for as long as there's quality in the programming presenting. That's the problem. You can grow advertising and viewership figures if you produce a great product. So many people don't watch RTE and they object to paying the licence, says Lorna. Uh, Bernard, about RTE guests on The Late Late, says that The Late Late has a problem at present. There's the Hollywood strike, so they can't get any movie stars because they can't talk about their films because of the actors and writers all being on strike. A bigger issue there, I think, is the fact that, yes, of course, there is a strike, but the biggest issue there is that it's a live show on a Friday night and getting Hollywood talent to agreeing to be in um, Ireland on a Friday night is an issue. The one thing Tuberty had at his disposal was because he was around all week, if somebody was only available on a Tuesday, they'd get the set ready for the Tuesday and pre-record the item. Uh, For On The Record, disagree with Adrian's take on The Late Late Show. Definitely will watch it again. Thought Patrick did a great job and he feels like a great palate cleanser. That's Adrian cancelled I've cancelled. I've been cancelled. We can all be cancelled. Consider yourself banished now from public discourse. (laughs) Uh, And an interesting question from Rob in Tralee. Just wondering if there's any viewing figures available uh, for The Late Late Show. My own mother, a lifelong fan of the show, uncharacteristically didn't tune in to see the new man, says Rob. Um, The viewing figures for programmes that air on a Friday and onwards are gathered over a weekend. So if we are going to hear about them, you'll probably hear about them some stage mid-morning tomorrow. Uh, And someone else has texted in about Garda Roster. We'll try and make some sense of that and get it back to you in just a mo. Um, John, one piece that isn't in the papers today, and you're, you're actually a little bit surprised that it's not because of the policy implications of it, is the planning being refused for the Shannon LNG terminal. That's liquefied natural gas. And you were telling us before we came on air that actually the refusal of that, people might argue yes on environmental grounds, but you have some concerns about how the process was arrived at. Well, I suppose it's, it's, it's been covered very clearly that one, we're waiting for this energy security report to be issued from the government with regard to Ireland's future access to energy so the country can function. It's quite clear that the minister, Eamon Ryan, wrote to the Ambord Planola objecting to the planning and it appears in the planning response, the, 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 it said here that the majority A2 decision was based on government policy on the import of fracked, fracked gas. So first of all, just step back a second. I don't know if you saw there, Tom O'Brien, Chief Executive of Neffen, who has obviously a vested interest in this, mm. wrote an op-ed just around the 100th anniversary of Ireland's independence and highlighted the fact that we now find ourselves potentially depending on the British again for access to sustainable energy. We're all into green. We want renewable. Do we, do we think gas is sustainable energy? Or, uh, are you referring to gas or do you mean... No, I mean any access to any energy. Okay, so whether it's going to be nuclear electricity coming from, coming from France, we have so little within the, our, our, our control. Yeah. And ultimately we're depending on Britain potentially for all of our access to energy. Okay. And what I'm saying here is that there's a transition of 15 to 20 years before we get all green. Mm. And in that basis, we need to celebrate and need to use gas, which is the cleanest of all the fossil fuels, as I understand it, okay, mm. to sustain and keep the lights on. And from my perspective, we're the only country, I think, in Western Europe not to have a storage facility, yeah. which means that we're, we're, we're producing and spending and we have nothing to store. And it's leaving us, from my perspective, totally exposed. If there's no so oil, if, if this has been turned down on environmental grounds, and it is interesting and there's a bigger debate to be had around whether um, Borplanola should turn down things because it's... Uh, government status policy or whether it's actually in compliance with planning law or not but um, are you saying that the government basically has been too short-sighted that in pursuit of the greater goal 
that it is now effectively vetoed something which is an important part of a transition? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. And okay. I think that it's a demonstration again. I mean, maybe now that they're all in New York this week, maybe it's the week to get decisions made in the Dáil where they're not here. But ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, it just feels like this transitional period, which we all acknowledge is real, 15 to 20 years, there has to be some sort of sustainable strategic plan. And again, it's frightening to think, it seems like in all the topics we're discussing, mm. that lack of strategic vision. So while, while the Greens are away, the gas will play, is basically <laughs> the, the policy idea there. Uh, one piece that did catch your eye, uh, Adrian, is about uh, one thing which may be in the budget, and in fact, because it's been so heavily trailed as being part of the budget, there's a fair chance it will be part of the budget, which is the extension of free school books to secondary schools. Yeah, the Education Minister, Norma Foley, has now been dubbed Free Books Foley. Um, and what this, a moniker. What a moniker. Um, and this potential new move will cost... Um, only an extra 150 million euro for quite a lot of people um, being quite pleased about it. Mm. So potentially, again, an extension of the free book scheme. It's already in place now for the primary mm. and, and um, hopefully soon to be in place for secondary. Is there a danger well? that if the, the state starts to basically kind of uh, effectively nationalise the book buying industry, that then the publishers can uh, really step up what they're sometimes of accused of doing, which is changing the books every couple of years, yeah, really and then requiring the state to keep investing in new ones every single time? Well, if, if you were a book publisher, wouldn't you do that though as well? So yeah. yeah, there is a huge risk of that, but they already do it. You have to change the books almost every year yeah. anyway. So there is no handing down as it stands really um, mm. of school books. They do change very regularly. So yeah, absolutely. That's going to be a huge risk. And I think that probably needs to be looked at uh, as well in terms of best practice for the publishers. Mm. But, it's, uh, but it's also a really clever political decision that parents will see money in their pockets immediately with regard mm. to the books and I think that certainly from my perspective it's one of those cleverer things to do with regard to kind of helping with the cost of living and it's something you can, you can say materially Norma Foley as Minister for Education as the person who gave free books to children yeah. and it becomes something that That's you her, become synonymous with yeah. moment, yeah. Yeah. Free yeah. books Foley uh, On that note actually I did say on this programme last week that many principals were of the view that the ICT grant for this year had effectively been abolished in exchange for the funding for free uh, school books for primary schools A uh, spokesman for Norma Foley told me during the week uh, I met them at the Fianna Fáil thinking they said that wasn't the case the ICT grant had not been abolished it had merely been paid on the double the previous year to help schools recover from the pandemic and that was the reason why it didn't exist uh, for the year just gone. It was nothing to do with one funding pot being eliminated for the other. That was what the spokesperson said, just putting it on the record. Uh, Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm uh, and the owner of Rainforest Bath, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. And John Cunningham, who has loads of titles, one of which is being involved with Morgan McKinley as Relationship Director, thank you very much uh, for your company. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organisation. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk.